This is a tough text because it deals with an issue that is raging in our culture today. It was written 2,000 years ago before America existed or before even the category of slavery that we now understand it says it, uh, or existed. It raises a whole lot of questions that just weren't on the mind of the Apostle Paul. It also is the kind of text that just seems shocking, maybe especially to unbelievers, but to to any of us would ask the question, is the Bible rebuking of slavery? Is it supporting it? So there's some questions that just the very text itself raises. Yeah, this is God's word. And we know that not just some of Scripture is God-breathed, but all Scripture is God-breathed. And we believe that and, and put our body weight into it and want to hear what it has to say not only for us as God's people, but also about the world. So I'm going to pray and ask again, as we do every week, for the Lord to minister to us through his word, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, open our eyes that we may see the wondrous things from your law. Guide us as we wrestle with a tough issue that is heated in and of itself in our day. Thank you that we can just go through your word and numerous issues will be touched upon that we need your guidance, your insight, and your wisdom. Help us to receive that today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul has been dealing with widows, he's dealt with elders, he's stopped and spoken about Timothy personally, and now he gives some counsel to slaves. Let me put it in some context, because we need it. The topic of slavery raises emotions and many opinions, especially in 21st century America. We are not decontextualized. We aren't in a vacuum. We are living in an America that is, has nerves in, on fire over this topic right now. And it has for a long time. On top of that, our own nation has sinned horrifically in either practices that facilitate slavery or even passivity that denies it. And to be honest, slavery is still commonplace in the world today. But let me put it in historical context. People, and this is important, people in the ancient world did not live as free-floating individuals. And that's the way you and I as moderners engage. We, we, we engage as free-floating individuals. And proof of this is when you introduce yourself, you probably introduce yourself entirely in, based upon your own accomplishments or identity. You don't, call, you don't say, I am son of or daughter of somebody, right? Proof of that. When you, when you read the Bible, they're always son of somebody, aren't they? Why? Because they're not free-floating individuals, they're connected to a family. They're connected to a group. And their identity is primarily controlled and fed by the people around them or who have gone before them. That is not how you think. My daughter does not say, I am daughter of Mickey. And then like, move on. And they're like, what's your name? It does not matter. Like she would give her name and say that she really likes the color blue. And that she really would want a horse. And it would all be this stuff completely related to her as an individual. That's how we exist in the world today. That is alien to the ancient world. 
You were the son or the daughter of somebody in a specific class. There was no steel worker, if there was steel workers in the first century, there was no steel worker like a presidential candidate long ago who would then run for president. Didn't happen. If you were the son of a steel worker, guess what you would be? A steel worker. If you were the son of a baker, guess what you would be? A baker. Why? Because you were the son of somebody. So in Ephesus, like the rest of the Roman world, people were born into predetermined positions in the social complex, with slaves being at the bottom of a long continuum of varying levels of subordination based on birth. So think of it this way. Hierarchy or social structure was like gravity. You don't mess with it. You don't go to the edge of a cliff and say, I am a free-floating individual. I will jump and it will not hurt me. You are always aware of gravity and when you get near the edge of a cliff, you tread carefully. So think of that now with social structure. You live with it. I'm walking down the street, St. Andrew, Scotland. This is probably 2003-ish. I'm an American, right? There's all these university students, and there's all of a sudden these two or three university student girls right in front of me. I don't know, maybe sophomores, juniors, I have no idea. And they're walking, and they're talking about this, and they're going to this party, etc. and they're doing this, they're talking about this difficult professor, and I'm totally listening in two feet behind. And a street cleaner, yes, they have those, a street cleaner spots these two or three pretty girls, runs across the street to start up a conversation. He is, my guess, around the same age. Clearly did not go to university, not in the university track. In fact, in certain European countries, you're kind of slotted as early as elementary school. Again, America's like, what? Because everyone's going to go to university now, right? Again, in the free-floating individual world, that's what you think. But in the ancient, you know, even in other cultures, that's just not how it works. You're kind of slotted. This guy's dad was probably a street cleaner, and he's a street cleaner. So he sees these couple pretty girls. He runs over, and he's totally trying to ask them out, and I'm listening to the whole thing unashamedly. What are you guys doing tonight? Well, yeah, this. And they, they were kind to him, and they kind of spoke nicely to him, and they seemed very polite, and he walked away back to his job because they, they didn't stop. They just kept walking, and he was obviously working in this side of a gutter of a street over there right on Main Street, just down from the ancient cathedral ruins. Don't have that in Roscoe or Rockton. And when he walked away, they go, can you believe that? And this is what one girl said. Can you imagine what my father would say if I brought a street cleaner home? Now, why is that? Was it because he wasn't a good guy? Is it, it wasn't cute? No, social status. There is a hierarchy. These girls who were at St. Andrews, which is the sister school of Princeton University, would not date a street cleaner, let alone marry them. Can you imagine what my father would say? It's like gravity. There's a social structure. And in this interesting country of America, it may be the most muted, but in most countries, even still in the world, it strongly exists. Slavery was oppressive in the ancient world. It was un 
desirable, but it was universal across the planet in the day of Paul. In fact, please hear this. Unlike what it ended up becoming in the modern world, it was not based on skin color at all. It wasn't based on race. And that's something important for us to understand. Because when we think of slavery in 21st century America, we're thinking of white skin versus black skin. That is not, those two, that street cleaner was as white as those two or three girls. The difference is these two or three girls come from the family of elite people. And that guy's a street cleaner. I think I've told you the story before when I was in the residence hall in St. Andrews and the Queen's lawyer's son ended up being in my dorm. I was a warden. That does not mean I was in charge of prisoners. Even though you could say with college students, sometimes it felt like it. I was a re- what we would call resident director. And I was supposed to slot people in the rooms. And I had slotted a six foot four, mega wealthy son of the lawyer of Queen Elizabeth on the highest and lowest floor. In fact, it was in this old building where the servants' quarters and the ceiling was only six feet tall. And he was six four. And his mother walked in that dormitory. I'll never forget it because I saw a parting of the Red Sea because obviously everybody in Britain knew who this woman was and I had no idea because I'm with a place called Rockford, Illinois. We don't have a queen in Rockford. And she walked up to me and this is what she said. She, she walked up to me and she looked at me and said, do you know who I am? I mean, that was her first comment. And what is she assuming? That there is a whole social credit that she carries with her identity, not based on the way she speaks to me, this dumb American who has no idea what culture is, that I'm supposed to know that and I need to exist in that. In essence, she was like, you are jumping off a cliff and I am gravity. Now that is the world that you see existing in the day of the first century. That is what slavery was like. You don't look at it and say, well, I don't believe in gravity. That was the way the world is. In fact, if we were going to argue about the evil of slavery, we would say it isn't even just social structures. It's not just racial preference. All of that become uh, advances in it and distortions of it and, and, and motions of it. We wouldn't even say that. We would simply say it started in the Garden of Eden. When humanity began to claim a right and an authority, how about this, a social status that belonged to God alone. The moment that happened and there was a distortion of social status, guess what what reverberated throughout world history? Total chaos and brokenness. Slavery was oppressive and undesirable, It was universal across the world and indeed across the Roman Empire and even across most civilizations until even recently. And even then, you wouldn't necessarily be wrong to say for 350 years in the United States, slavery was official. In the last 50, it's just been more unofficial. So does the Bible and the Christian faith rebuke slavery or do enough to fight it. I, I can just imagine anybody would sit down with you and have some questions about Christian faith, and they read 1 Timothy 6, 1 to 2, they'd say, wait a second, is he not rebuking it? Well, let me make a couple thoughts about that. It needs to be addressed. The world is asking this question of God's word. 
First is this. Some say the Bible approves of slavery, like this text, because it does not rebuke it straight away. This is a bit unfair. The fancy word would be anachronistic. It would be like blaming the Bible for not addressing the internet. There were no social orders in the known free world without slavery. Hierarchy was simply deemed as natural. My son, yesterday in near St. Louis, got invited to a, uh, I call it a cattle auction. You ever been to a cattle auction? I've been in one, middle of nowhere, Kansas, all these farmers, and then me was sitting around, and they brought in all these cattle, and they're slapping them, and they're measuring them, and they're doing all this, and like, who wants to buy them? He got invited to that at a university in St. Louis area where there were about 50 or 60 coaches, and there were some of the biggest and strongest football players all over the country who were coming in to go off against one another, and I got to watch a cattle auction where they measured him and pushed him and did all this kind of stuff, and they got to see. And I'm telling you, you, you could just kind of see that it wasn't even. You've got a six-foot-one, 205 offensive lineman going against a six-foot-six, 340-pound offensive lineman. It just ain't fair. And there was no, oh, you know what, this isn't fair. Nope, doesn't matter what the Lord give you, you're going to play with. It was seemed as, it, it just feels, nobody says that. Nobody says, well, that's just not fair. I mean, I'm 5'11", but I should be in the NBA. Nobody says, it's, it's just, some people are 6'10", some are 5'10". You can't coach that. It's just the way it is. Hierarchy was just deemed as natural. We would even say that with other things. Like, you wouldn't just select anybody to be the brain surgeon that's going to work on you. You would hope that they actually are quite smart. You wouldn't just select anybody to work on your carburetor. You would hope that they have some mechanical abilities. Here's another. This rebuke of Christianity places itself in a morally high position, as if our culture now has a superior social order. Well, let me just say this to you. In the estimated in the Roman Empire in the first century, there were 45 million slaves. Estimation right now in the 21st century around the world, there are 45 million slaves. Think about that for a second. The 20th century was the most brutal century in human history measured by loss of life and genocide. Here's some example. Persecution. There are eyewitness accounts of Christian persecution, Christians being persecuted. Eyewitness accounts, there are 1,207 deaths a year. That means 3.3 people a day, Christians, are dying because of their faith in Christ. If we include religious wars, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity says that 90,000 Christians a year will die because of war and persecution. That's 247 a day. That's 20 people during first service this morning. So what superior social order does this century stand on to look two millennia back and say, you guys were quite immoral. 
By the way, those numbers are only increasing. If 90,000 people a year die because of religious war today, by 2025, that's four years from now, the estimation is 100,000. The very fact, get this, the very fact that the Bible even speaks into slavery, it even, that it even addresses it, and looks beyond the order itself is a remarkable fact. It itself is proof that a timeless God who is outside of time is able to speak into a social order and do something about it. Paul referred to himself Christianly as a slave numerous times. He wanted to describe himself as I am not in the social status of my Lord. I am beneath him. I am in submission to him. He is my master. I am his slave. Yet listen to Galatians 3.28. This would have been an offensive text to a non-Christian. When talking about the lack of structure in the church, listen to this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor nor free, for all are one in Jesus Christ. That, I mean, there would literally be people standing up in churches and walking out having said that. Remember the history. If you don't, even as early as last century, there would be churches where slavery was allowed where the, the, the white slave owners could sit here and the slaves would have to sit back there. Where the white Slave owners could be the elders and the pastors and the slaves. They want the, they want the Lord to free their souls, but not necessarily free their bodies. That was happening in churches, not just in farm fields and plantations. For the Bible to say that is remarkable, and we miss that. Even more, Paul urged slaves who could attain freedom to do so in 1 Corinthians 7.21. If you can get freedom, get free. And he commanded masters to live differently toward their slaves. Again, who would have the right to say that? Paul's ministry goal was not revolutionary change of the social order. I think that's still hard for us to do that. I think I've given the categories for our church before as defense against approach, where it becomes highly political. Like We still kind of fight that way. Like, we still get shocked with all these kind of manifestations of brokenness and sin in the world. What do you expect there to be until the Lord comes back and redeems all things? Jesus taught us to seek first the kingdom of God. Only a new king and a sinless kingdom could rid the human heart of sin. And sin and death itself is, guess what, a form of slavery. Paul says we are enslaved to sin and death. That faces every human. Whether you are white or black, whether you are the slave or the slave owner, in whatever culture we're talking, no legislation could change your enslavement to sin. Father, just in response to that question, is the Bible do enough? You'd have to say this. The Bible's teachings clearly had reforming implications. Eventually, Christian doctrine and practice could and did change 
corrupt institutions like slavery, arguably in the lives of someone like William Wilberforce in Great Britain or in various institutional forces in the United States, it was Christianity that spoke into that, not secularism. So when we look at these verses that Bev read for us, what are we seeing? That's a little context. Paul commands in these verses, reveal three truths for slaves and about slavery. Let me give those to you as we as we move to the end of, our, of the time in the Word today. First is this. Paul describes slavery as a yoke. That's just, that's just good to hear. Any question that this is like a Paul affirming this, he's not. He calls it a yoke, by which he sees it as both negative and oppressive. The use of this term helps us see how God views slavery. It's a yoke. It's a burden. It's oppressive. That means that every person is of value and to be shown honor. In fact, this is what Paul will demand of Christian slaves to their masters. Even though you have been treated unfairly, brother or sister, that doesn't mean you have the right to do it back. It just doesn't. In fact, I think that, that truth about this language of yoke teaches us not to think of sin and the consequences of sin as simply individual. The whole world is broken. It's broken, the whole world. Broken systems are simply corporate and global symptoms of sin. And just as God has defeated death, yet we still die, so God rebukes slavery and we yet we wait for its removal. We, we, I've shared this term before. This is helpful for Christians to know. We live in this already but not yet between the first and second coming of Jesus. God has already won. It's already been declared true. It's guaranteed. It's Babe Ruth holding the bat up and pointing into the sky. It's already but it's not yet. So he's defeated death but we're still doing funerals. He's defeated sin but yet we still, until he comes again, have a flesh that dictates to us at times. Where Paul says in Romans 7, I do what I don't want to do. And when I do, I remember that God is gracious. There is no condemnation for those under Christ Jesus. That's the already not yet. As disciples of the resurrected Lord, we must learn to live patiently and obediently in the already but not yet. That, that is hard. That doesn't mean we just allow injustice to exist. We just simply know we will never eradicate it. Here, here's a second truth from 1B. Christian slaves ought to honor their human masters as to the Lord and as a witness to the gospel. This is a remarkable command. So God isn't just coming down. Paul, Paul isn't just sitting with a slave and like, dude, total injustice. Get, get them. Get, get the people in charge. Do whatever you can do. I don't care. It's all out war. Don't worry about hurting them. Steal, injure, kill, fight back. It's revenge time. That's not what he says. He says, literally, you need to be a good slave, not only because 
of that they, that they are your master in the sense of this, your, your, your leader in this moment, but also as to the Lord, as a witness. Why didn't Paul make freedom of the slave the goal? What about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Why didn't he say that? The reason? Hear this this morning. Personal freedom is not the highest goal in life. Right there, that is for, for an American modern Westerner, I just was scratching my fingers on a chalkboard when I said this. Personal freedom is not the highest goal in life. If it becomes the highest goal, then guess to whom you become a slave? You become a slave to yourself. Life in God frees the Christian to truly love God, to love neighbor, and love one another. Life in God allows you to not only have to love yourself. And I'm telling you, I'm preaching this for, what, 30 minutes this morning? And you're getting hours of week of, it's all about you. Be the best you. Love yourself, baby. Love yourself, love yourself, love yourself, love yourself. You get 17 hours of that in your commercials, in your little speeches at school and all of your coaches and all of the screens and then you get 30 minutes to say don't love yourself they're trying to enslave you to you like you literally are enslaved to you your wants your desires they become your god and paul's speaking right through that and he's like oh you're not a slave you don't think you're a slave Don't be mastered by you. Be mastered by God. It means we can be inconvenienced. It means we can suffer. It means we can sacrifice. It means we can serve. Christian slaves are to show this by honoring their masters even when it is not reciprocated because they know full well that ironically a Christian slave is more free than a non-believing master who's enslaved to himself. By this command, Paul is teaching us that the most burdensome slavery is enslavement to sin. That's what the freedom is. That's where Paul spent his time. He didn't just start uh, super PAC organizations. Do the, he knew that only Jesus, the absolute true master, could remove the world of slavery. What he could do is present the gospel which freed you from slavery to sin, to death, and to self. It also teaches that we don't treat people based upon how they treat us. We treat them as to the Lord. Easier said than done. We all love that passage. If you get slapped on one cheek, give them the other. You're like, uh, that sounds great on paper. Until I'm in schnooks and I take the last frozen strawberries. And somebody, boom, slaps me. My reaction is, I'm going to give you those strawberries into your mouth right now. Finally, it teaches us that our lives are a testimony to the gospel. Did you know that there was a slave owner? A story long ago of a slave owner who saw the testimony of his own slaves and repented of not only 
his abusive treatment, but became a believer in Jesus Christ because a, a slave 100 years ago served as to the Lord? Last thing, 2A, Christian slaves are to treat Christian masters with not less but more respect since they, are, they have added the command to love one another. That, that, that's what verse 2 is saying. Those who have believing masters, right? Like, get this. Like, you're like, hey, that's a Christian, man. Galatians 3.28. Like, there's no slave and free. We're equal, right? Maybe. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better. Did you hear that? Since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So, so here's what Paul's saying. So you're a slave. That's a master. Your master's a Christian. Now, you might think that would allow you to slack. That, hey, man, we're on the same team, right? I don't need to do this. No, quite the opposite. Because that is your brother, you serve him all the more. You might get a little frustrated and say, what about him serving me? Oh, I'll get to that. I'll talk about that in my writings. Don't worry. The Bible talks about that. He commands the slave to be especially respectful and faithful to a believing master, for they're your sibling in Christ. The text teaches us how to look past human status and to see Christian status. Boy, if we could have heard this, to be honest with you, just around a year and a half ago before COVID started where we would just disagree with one another about how to handle COVID? What does this teach us? Christianity does not erase the social status between brothers and sisters. It only changes how we use our status in relation to them. It doesn't change it. That, that, Six foot one, 205 offensive linemen will not beat the six foot six, 340. Not going to happen. But if that six foot six, 340 is a Christian, how does he use his status? How does, how does a Christian use their status? And you want an example of somebody who used it perfectly? His name is Jesus. Listen to this. Paul talks about him in Philippians 2. He uses him as an example in, in to us. He says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests. Notice that you're not a slave to self. Don't just look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, now it gives the example of Jesus, Paul does. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, get this, Philippians 2, 7. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Oh, wait, did, did you just hear that? Jesus took the form of a slave? So the king of kings became a slave? He humbled himself, Paul ends, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, hear this truth. The goal of the, of the Christian, the goal of life for the Christian is not to be the master, but to be the humble and obedient slave. 
That's why the Bible didn't just throw slavery out. That, that's why he didn't just throw it out. Because actually, that's the goal. And if you want proof, when Jesus came, when he reached the pinnacle of his career, he obediently submitted to death as a crucified slave. And the Gospel of John calls that his exaltation, his lifting up, his coronation. That was his crowning achievement. He was the best slave on the planet. So now Paul turns to real slaves, and he says, oh, you don't want to be a slave anymore? You got a problem with that? Your master didn't. In fact, he was the best slave possible. Because he served you. Let me see you serve the Lord, no matter where you sit. Maybe this is why Paul called himself a slave. Because that was his goal. Right, we have graduating students, graduation parties, people. What do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do? What do you want to study? I want engineering, teaching. Someone says slavehood. What? You want? Yeah, I, I want to be, right? Imagine a graduate saying this at 18. I want to be the most humble and obedient slave Jesus Christ has ever had. There's probably not a major for that at NIU or Rock Valley, but there is in every local church. That's called discipleship. So how does this text apply to you today? Let me just end with this. First, who in your life is difficult to love? Nobody, don't say it out loud. No pointing across the room. Who's difficult to love or to serve? that the Lord would command you today to love and serve. Because the, the temptation is to say, oh, I got my rights, do you? Or are you just serving yourself? Are you enslaved to you? Well, we love to talk about liberty and freedom. Are we truly free? What, because of the weapons I can carry, or the voting I can do, or the property I can own. Yeah, yeah, great. Good, good. Yeah, fair enough. That's a, that's a level of freedom. I'm talking real freedom. Real freedom. Are you free? Or are you literally enslaved to your own impulses? Here's another application. How have you made your personal freedom, your rights, and your happiness the controller facting in your relationships and your daily de decisions? Like how have you literally, how does this text open up your chest cavity and show you the cancer of enslavement to self? And it is a cancer. It'll break all your relationships. It'll dominate what you think about and what you do. It will control your money, your time, your efforts, all your decisions, all your connections, all your networking, everything. It will be dominated by that. Our heart is an idol factory. It will find something to serve if it's not serving Christ. Or finally this, do you realize that the goal of life is not that you become a master, but that you become a slave? Imagine that. That's going to be the opposite of what you hear for the next 167 hours until we meet again next Sunday. And then we sit before a cross. The coronation of our king. 
And what does the cross symbolize? Slavery. Except it's not just one person who's supposed to be a slave. It's supposed to be all of us. To the most gracious and loving and giving and sacrificing master you can ever have. In fact, which master would die and serve his own slaves? Only Jesus. Lord, break us, I pray, of our enslavement to sin that we may serve others and you all the better. If you'd grab your communion cups now as it's the first Sunday of the month, we want to recognize our servitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, to be honest with you, we want to recognize his service to us. And what's so beautiful about this theme today is that now we talk about the unity around the table. Notice the cross is right beside this table, right, that we come to, this supper, And this supper certainly signifies God's service to us. That's the gospel. But it also has this language of communion because we are literally one body of Christ. That means there could be kings and peasants sitting in one room around the Lord's table and they all come equally as slaves of Jesus. If you're a believer, even if you're not one of our own members of this church, but you're with us and visiting today, we exhort you to participate in this with us. This is, this is the Lord's Supper. It's not ours. But if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, even if you grab one of these, just, just, just watch and listen to it proclaim not only the gospel, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also the unity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. It, take, take the bread out if you would and remember this, that when Jesus was with his last few minutes with his disciples. Literally, before in the garden, he was arrested, being betrayed, and put on trial, and ultimately hung on a cross. He wanted to signify the reality of our unified bond, peasant and king alike. And he wanted to signify the fact that it is not a bond because it's just we're going to will to love each other. It's not a bond that we're going to will to serve each other. We had to be broken of our enslavement to sin and death so we'd be free to actually be slaves to others. And he knew that would only come if he served us first. It's not because we were uh, lovers of others and we served selfishly. It was because Christ served us first. God loved us first. And the bread symbolized the fact that fulfilling the duty of being an obedient slave, he went to the cross to die for your sins. And he wanted us to take this, to know that we, literally our sustenance is found in Christ. Take the bread with me, please. And it's not just our relationship to Jesus Christ, but ultimately through Christ to the Father that is symbolized by this cup, which is described as a symbol of the new covenant. That's Bible language for this relationship that now exists. We are no longer 
mere slaves to sin and death. We are now adopted children of the Father who loves to give good gifts to his children. We are heirs of the kingdom of God. And this little cup symbolizes that full reality. Take this cup with me together. Bow your heads with me, if you will. And then just a moment as, as, we, as we're going to end with a, a closing song. And then there's this moment before we do. Just take a moment sitting there reflecting on what you've learned about Christ. That the King of Kings became your slave. How's that sit? Do you feel that? Remember when he was going to wash Peter's feet? Peter said, no, 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 no. i got to be your slave. You think about that for a minute, brothers and sisters. The king of the universe became a slave so that you could be set free. So that it wasn't about your life anymore. It's not about being the master of your fate. It's not about power anymore. What is power when the king became a slave? It's not about rights and freedoms. That the goal of your life is to be a slave of Christ. And when you are, you never feel more free. Father, Help us to see the goal of our life is not to be masters, but to be slaves. And thank you that you used this text, which could almost at first read be offensive to our cultural sensibilities today. Yet when we look closely, we see a crucified Lord telling us to pick up our cross and follow him. And now we think totally differently about what it means to be free and what it means to be a slave and what the goal of our life is. Father, help us no longer to be enslaved to ourselves, but to find freedom in Christ and Christ alone. Father, receive this closing song as a reflection and a prayer, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.